This evening, congregation, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Peter, uh, to the first chapter, we wish to read verses 1 through 5. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1390. After we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll also be looking in our Heidelberg Catechism at Lord's Day 8, and you can find this on page 209 in the Forms and Prayers book. We've chosen to read from 1 Peter 1, 1 through 5, because of course it is the inspired Word of God, but it also gives a very clear revelation of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we begin reading at verse 1, and we continue through verse 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, thus far this evening, our reading from God's Word, uh, we turn then to Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And we just want to remind ourselves that we're dealing with the second section of the Heidelberg Catechism, the manner of our deliverance from our sin and from our misery. And our uh, instructors are following uh, the structure of the Apostles' Creed as they begin to unfold and to explain uh, the body of doctrine which we believe in order for our salvation. Lord's Day 8 asks in question 24, how are these articles, referring to the articles of the Apostles' Creed, how are they divided? And the answer into three parts, God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Question 25 then continues, since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the answer, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true, eternal God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this evening as we've already alluded to in our introduction to the reading of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 8, we begin making our way through the body of the Apostles' Creed, that is the sum and substance and its most basic essence of the Christian faith. Uh, the faith which is necessary for us to exercise personally, uh, the faith which is necessary for the church to understand uh, in a certain maturity. Uh, now, you might say, uh, you know, what is the most uh, simple thing for us to know in order to be saved? And I guess you could uh, echo the apostles when they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But as we come to a greater understanding of that truth, we come to understand that in addition to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is also the person of the Father and the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want to consider this evening. And we do so underscoring 
that the belief in the Trinity, a word that is not necessarily found in Scripture, but a word which represents scriptural truth. Uh, Boys and girls, Trinity is a compound word, one word made of two words put together. Uh, You notice that there is tri, which means three. So you might think of a tricycle. A tricycle is uh, a, a bike, perhaps, that has three wheels. And then on the end of that, try, there is the unity word. And unity, of course, means one. So Trinity, although it's not a word found in the Bible, certainly represents a biblical truth that when we speak about God, when we come to know God, the God who is true, the God who is real, is one God. But in that one God, there are three distinct persons. And from the outset, we acknowledge that this surpasses mere human reason, that this goes beyond man's rationalism. And so we just put in a a reminder that our faith is not, and it cannot be based upon man's reason. Uh, If any one of us who hears these words sets out to build a theology or a certain spiritual life based upon human reason alone, I can assure you that you will very, very quickly make shipwreck concerning the faith. And so I earnestly implore with you, do not build your faith merely upon your own reason, but rather build your faith upon God's revelation, as that revelation is found in His Word. Because when we look at the Word of God, we'll notice that there is the revelation of God as He is, one only God, And in that one God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is the basic element, truth, uh, that is the most distinctive truth of Christianity. I also, by way of introduction, want to note, especially for our young people, uh, for our boys and girls, our teenagers, our college and university students, uh, that you live in an age of pluralism. And the cry of our pluralistic society uh, is to break down any type of distinctions and simply say all forms of religious expression are equally valid. Pluralism is a lie. All forms of spiritual and religious expression are not equally valid when it comes to objective truth. There are not many ways to the Father, but there is one way to the Father, and that one way to the Father is through Jesus Christ, and that one way through Jesus Christ is the way that is led by the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so we turn our attention this evening uh, to this first Lord's Day dealing with the content of the Apostles' Creed underneath this theme, Deliverance by the triune God. And I've titled the theme that way because I want to capture that we are not just engaged in some abstract theological reflection. It's not as if we come here tonight and didn't have anything else to do, and so we thought, well, let's hear a man speak for approximately 30 minutes on this abstract concept of a triune God so that we may nod in agreement and that we may go home perhaps with reflection And we might find perhaps some motivation uh, for the week that lies ahead. But no, we're dealing with the manner of our deliverance. How you and how I have been and can be delivered, saved, rescued, redeemed from our sin and from our misery, from our alienation from God. And so even such a difficult concept as the Trinity is most relevant and most practical 
for our own comfort and for the glory of God. So our theme again is deliverance by the triune God. And as we look at that theme, we'll notice first of all the unity of the Trinity. And you might simply put behind that, there is only one true God. And then secondly, we'll look at the plurality of the Trinity. In that one true God, there is a plurality of persons, more specifically three distinct persons. And then we'll look thirdly at the revelation of the Trinity, or you might say, how do we come to know this with absolute certainty? So first of all then, uh, deliverance by the triune God, the unity of the Trinity. I want to look at the theological truth and then tease out a little bit of the practical importance of knowing and believing and being convinced beyond any reasonable doubt that there is only one true God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 was the great refrain of the Old Testament uh, Jewish community, uh, the people of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And if you want a verse to memorize, that would be a good verse to memorize. Hear, O Israel, not Israel strictly speaking in the ethnic sense, but Israel in the spiritual sense. We might update the language without doing it in injustice to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say, Hear, O church, the Lord your God is one. There is only one true God the creator of the heavens, the inhabitant of the heavens, the inhabitant of eternity, the creator of earth, and the creator of all that is in the earth. Uh, the next Lord's Day will deal more specifically uh, with the work of God the Father in connection with creation. Uh, we just want to underscore the unity of God. And remember again the context in which this original statement is given by the Lord to his people. The Lord has called Israel, the Lord has called the church out of uh, a, a world in which Polytheism was the order of the day, and poly means many, theism means God, and so when you think of Egypt, you have to think of many, many gods. Nearly everything in Egypt was considered to be a god, the sun, the Nile, uh, even some of the animals that would come forth, the reptiles out of the Nile, uh, and the Egyptians no doubt also were incurably religious, as are all men according to Acts 17, uh, but the Egyptians in the blindness of their futility worshipped nearly everything, uh, and Israel had spent uh, quite a number of years in that context and in that influence, uh, very similar to the world in which you and I are called to live in, uh, in which many around us, whether it be through pantheism, and pan means all, so pantheism is the lie which says all is God. Or panentheism, uh, which means that God is in everything. And so you hear people speak that God is in the sunset, that God is in uh, the trees, that God is in the flowers of the field. Now certainly the divine power of God is behind the creation and the sustaining of those elements. But God is not in a tree. God is not in a sunset. God is in heaven. Now, of course, he's omnipresent, but the point is simply this, that we believe and we must believe and we must continue to hand down from one generation to the next generation in a countercultural type of a way. We must take our children and our grandchildren and sit with them and say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. One God. One only true God in contrast to all of the various heresies uh, that have arisen and that will arise. 
And we also add that you and I are not God. Let us be reminded of that truth also this evening, because self-idolatry continues to plague a many, many, many a person, and many, many a person within the church. I am not God. You are not God. There is an infinite distinction between the Creator uh, and the creation. Uh, And this theological truth that there is only one divine being of infinite perfections who inhabits eternity, whom we call God based upon his own self-revelation, this is practically important that we would avoid idolatry. Idolatry is to trust, to worship, to serve, to glorify, to live for anyone or anything other than that one true God. And, of course, Israel struggled with the sin of idolatry as they fabricated the golden calf. And they dealt with the sin of idolatry when these shrines were built at Dan and Bethel. And you might say that the idolatry that plagued Israel was the downfall that led them into exile. And so idolatry is not only a danger for those who are outside of the realm of the church, but idolatry is also a danger for those who are inside the realm of the church. And so we each need to search our own heart and find where our idols are, our particular unique idols are, because it is certainly true, as John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. Now, you know that there are some factories that only work one shift, uh, eight hours. There are other factories, perhaps, that have two shifts. They manufacture goods Uh, for 16 hours out of the day, and then there are those very aggressive manufacturing plants that have three shifts and the assembly line never shuts down, I would submit to you that the human heart is one of such a factory, continually prone to produce idol after idol after idol. Perhaps it's the idol of a narcissistic love of self. Perhaps it is the idol of the pursuit of uh, money. Perhaps it is the idol of social uh, fame and claim. Whatever it is, the idols are there. And we have been warned. And we are warned again tonight. And I would encourage you that it is a most distracting thing to identify the idol in your neighbor's heart. But it is a most spiritual beneficial practice to humbly identify the idol within your own heart and then by God's grace begin to tear it down and with each blow of the hammer of repentance say there is but one God the true God of heaven and of earth who must be worshiped honored and glorified in all aspects of our life. You can think of Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Your reasonable service, given the fact that we have been redeemed by God, it's only logical, it's only expected that we would present all that we are and all that we have into the service of the one true God. And so you can think also of Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Notice there the definite article, the. The one, the only, the true, the living God who has not only created us, but Lord who has redeemed us. And so there is a unity of the Trinity, and we are reminded in the context 
uh, of secular pluralism, that there is only one God. And yet the Bible reveals more about this one God, and much could be said and much should be said as different occasions allow. But in our second point, we want to just try to uh, unfold something of the plurality of the Trinity as seen with distinct persons and distinct operations. Now, the Bible, of course, is uh, historical revelation. Now, the Bible is not contradictory. Later passages do not contradict earlier passages, but the Bible does historically progress, and as it historically progresses, it reveals with greater and greater clarity, in addition to other things, something of the nature of God. And so you might say that in the opening of the Old Testament, the emphasis more falls upon the unity of God, not to the exclusivity of the plurality of God, but the emphasis falls more on the unity of God. There is one God. But as uh, the history of Revelation progresses, there is the ever-increasing clarity that within that one God there are three distinct persons, three distinct individual existences, not separate one from another, eternally united together in the bond of fellowship. Uh, we find already the beginning of this in Genesis chapter 1 when it says that God created the heavens and the earth and the Spirit hovered over the waters. There already is the allusion to a distinction of persons between God the Father and God the Spirit. Uh, you can think also of Genesis 1 verse 26, that inter-Trinitarian dialogue where God said to Himself, let us, notice the plural, let us make man an hour. Notice again the plural. And of course, pronouns and also the number of the pronouns, whether they are singular or plural, are breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And so there is also the revelation of a plurality of persons within the one God. But this truth becomes especially clear in the New Testament uh, with the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so you can think of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ, the divine nature and the human nature, being united together in the Jordan River, receiving the waters of baptism. Uh, a voice is heard from heaven, the voice of the Father, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit in the form of a dove descends upon the person of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so three distinct persons are present the Father through His voice, the Son in the incarnate mediator, and the Holy Spirit taking upon the form, the temporary form of a dove. And you can think also of the baptismal formula as Jesus Christ gave that to the church upon His ascension. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, notice the singular, and the singular must be emphasized. I well remember one of my seminary professors exhorting us, do not ever baptize in the names, plural. When you recite that formula, always make sure it is the singular, the name. Go, therefore, and baptize in the name, emphasizing the singularity of the divine essence, but notice then also in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can think also of the closing benediction that the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthian church as he speaks of the grace, the love, and the mercy of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so it is very clear if we take an honest reading of Scripture that yes, there is a unity 
of the one true God, but in that unity there are three distinct persons. And boys and girls, I know this can be very confusing. I like to think of it this way. There is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. But there are not three gods. There is one only God. And the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But there are not three gods. In more precise theological terminology, we speak of these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being co-essential, each possessing the fullness of the divine nature. Co-eternal, so that the Father never existed apart from the Son, and the Father and the Son never existed apart from the Spirit. All of them dwelt together in perfect communion and fellowship from all of eternity. And they are co-equal. The Father is not more God than the Son. The Son is not more God than the Spirit. And the Father and the Spirit and the Son are all equally possessive of the divine honor and glory that belongs to the one true God. And, And yet, They are distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And we know this because of the distinct names that God gives to each one of the persons. So there is the name in Scripture of Father. This is not something that we have just invented in some type of deep, rationalistic, gymnastic trickery. Why do we believe that there is a first person of the Trinity whom we call the Father? Because... That's exactly how the first person of the Trinity reveals himself in Scripture as the Father. And why do we refer to the second person of the Trinity as the Son? Because that is exactly how Scripture reveals and speaks of the second person of the Trinity as the Son. And now there is a reason in addition also why the Spirit is called the Spirit because of their distinctive properties and operations. There is something unique about the Father that is not true about the Son and the Spirit. Now, there are those things which are true of all three persons. All three persons are eternal, equal, and of the same essence. But as we study Scripture with the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, we recognize that there is something that is true about the Father that is not true about the Son and the Holy Spirit, and that is that the Father alone engages in the eternal operation of begetting the Son. And now here I do have to confess that we plunge into the great depths of the mystery of the inter-operations of God himself. Now if you remove any concept of time, the act of the Father begetting the Son is that the Father is the source of the personal self-existence of the second person of the Trinity. Not in the sense that he communicates the divine essence to the Son. The Son possesses from all of eternity the divine essence. But the Father is the source of the personal existence of the Son. And Spirit has this idea of breathing. And so what is distinct about Uh, The Spirit is that the Spirit is the particular person uh, that proceeds forth from the Father and from the Son. 
And so based upon uh, these distinct properties, we can distinguish between these three persons, but notice also uh, that they have unique or distinct operations. Now, when it comes to the works that God does outside of himself, all three persons are always involved. The Father never does something apart from the Son and the Spirit's involvement. Because there is a perfect unity of purpose. And this also has implications for that relationship uh, that most closely reflects the inter-Trinitarian relationship, that of marriage. Uh, in a good and in a biblical and in a healthy marriage, the husband does not do anything secretively uh, apart from the wife's knowledge. And the wife does not have her own purposes apart from her husband's knowledge. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist and also operate together in perfect harmony. And yet there is a work that is more particularly described to the Father, and that is the work of creation. And here we can be purposely brief because future Lord's Days will deal with this. But when you think of the Father, you think especially of the creator of the heavens and of the earth. Uh, and when it comes to the person of the Son, and we think especially of the accomplishment of the work of redemption, the Son is the person of the Trinity who had to be incarnate. The Son, not the Father, not the Spirit, uh, is the one who suffers. The Son is the one who in His human nature dies, having body and soul separated as a substitutionary atonement for sin. And so we just have the opportunity again to inform anyone who hears these words, there is only one Savior, there is only one substitutionary sacrifice, there is only one way in which sins can be forgiven, and that is through the work which the Son alone accomplishes, the work of redemption. But having accomplished the work of redemption when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he promised and he fulfilled his promise of sending forth the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has the particular unique aspect of the divine work of applying salvation through what our instructors and what Scripture also calls the definitive and ongoing work of sanctification. The giving of the gift of regeneration the giving of the gift of the increase of faith, the exercise of faith, uh, the giving of the gift of repentance, uh, the giving of the gift of assurance and of comfort, all of these belong more specifically to the person of the Holy Spirit. And when we reflect upon this, again, we're not just complimenting ourselves and our knowledge of the Trinity, but hopefully we begin to stand with renewed sense of awe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equally and unified in their saving of sinners. And so you can ask yourself this question, which person is more important to you, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? And if you contemplate that question just for a moment, I trust your answer will be all three of them. And so I want to ask you by way of reflection, do you love the Father? Do you love the Son? Do you love the Holy Spirit? And then I also ask you, do you worship the Father? Do you worship the Son? Do you worship the Holy Spirit? In corporate actions and in personal individual actions, 
But why do we speak of three persons if there is only one God? That's our third point, the revelation of the Trinity. And uh, you'll notice that we already referred to a number of passages from Genesis chapter 1, and there's also references in Isaiah uh, of the three distinct persons. We mentioned the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, the baptism formula that Jesus Christ gave, and also the benediction as recorded in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, rather 13. And so it's very, very clear that the revelation of the Trinity is found in the Word of God alone. In the Word of God alone. And a few words on the role of this revelation and the reception of the revelation. The Bible, the Holy Bible, the inspired Word of God, the 66 canonical books that are the only standard of authority for our doctrine and for our life. That has to remain just that, the only standard of our doctrine and of our life. Because you can survey church history and you can see many, many, many uh, heresy that has arisen, whether it be Arianism of old, which denied the deity of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, whether it be Sabellianism of old, uh, which also denied the distinction between the three persons, and as they come in their common form in our own day uh, with the movement known as the Jehovah's Witnesses, sure, they'll speak about the Son as God, but not in the same sense as the Father. There is no new error, heresy under the Son. Every single theological heresy and error always begins when a person moves just very slightly away from the authority of the Word of God alone. And so I would plead with you tonight Bind your heart firmly to the Word of God alone. And purpose, maybe even say to yourself, as for me, I will hold on to what the Word of God says. Even if the entire world mocks and laughs and scoffs and ridicules, even if my coworkers and my classmates say, it doesn't make any sense, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I will say it makes perfect sense because that is how God has revealed himself, and we are bound to receive the revelation of God because the word of God is truth. If we find the Trinity revealed in the word of God, and if we believe with absolute conviction that the word of God is truth, then who cares what anyone else says? Whether they have great credentials behind their name or whether they have no credentials behind their name, whether it's a mocking, scoffing co-worker, or whether it's someone who stands in front of a university classroom with all sorts of degrees behind his or her name, if they doubt or deny the Trinity, they are the most ignorant of persons. Bind your heart to the Word of God. Because when you look with childlike faith into the Word of God, you see very clearly there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But you also see that there are three distinct persons. Go therefore and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yes, this is a mystery, but a mystery that has been revealed, that has been revealed for our faith. Because to quote uh, the church father Athanasius, as has also made its way uh, into the Athanasian Creed, he that is the person that will be saved must thus believe the Trinity. In order for our redemption, in order for our salvation, think of it this way, in order for your reconciliation with the one true God, can you do without any one of these three persons? 
Can you be reconciled to God without the Father? Can you be reconciled to God without the Son? Can you be reconciled to God without the Spirit? The answer is no. Not a single one of these persons is replaceable. And that's why in addition, I shouldn't say in addition, in connection with the testimony of the Word of God, that's why we say the person who would be saved must believe in the Trinity. Because in order for us to have salvation, we need a knowledge of the Father and a knowledge of the Son and a knowledge of the Holy Spirit. And in order for us to have salvation, we need a faith in the Father, we need a faith in the Son, and we need a faith in the Holy Spirit. And so thanks be to God that God has revealed Himself this way as the one only transcendent God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for us and for our salvation. Amen.